bringing to life the souls of the past that until now have been lost to history. Talking Heart Island is a half-hour weekly podcast that explores the history of Heart Island, America's largest mass graveyard. Heart Island has been used as New York City's Potter's Field since 1869. It is estimated there are over one million people buried there. Because of recent advances in DNA and fingerprint technology, the identities of some of these previously forgotten and anonymous people have been revealed. The results are truly shocking. Talking Heart Island will interview a special guest each week, selected from an extraordinary assembly of scholars, authors, and scientists in the fields of history, law, medicine, and the arts, as we unravel a secret kept hidden for 150 years. So welcome to Talking Heart Island. And now, here is our host, investigative history writer Michael T. Keene. Thank you very much, Norma Jean. And this is Michael Keene, and we are Talking Heart Island. Today's episode is brought to us by the Wayne County Historians Organization. They've created an online database of historic sites, and it can be found at waynehistorians.org. And Rose O'Keefe, an author from Rochester, New York, researching Western New York history is like diving into a bottomless well full of rocks and rainbows. Some of the history is very painful, and some of it is truly inspiring. One uh, more quick thing before we begin. We've been asked, how can you listen to previous episodes of Talking Hard Island podcast? And you may do so by simply logging on to our website, michaeltkeen.com. It is estimated that during the AIDS epidemic of New York City that ran roughly from the period of 1980 to the year 2000, 100,000 people died of AIDS. Let me repeat, 100,000 people died of AIDS in New York City. Among them, it is estimated that thousands were buried on Hart Island, many because they had become disowned by their family and died unclaimed, and many more because there was no one left to take charge of their burials. AIDS was a particularly cruel and terrifying during the first few years of its existence because of the lack of knowledge of what it actually was. Even the medical community was at a loss to explain this new contagion. And I can't think of a better person to lead us through this than Jean Ashton. Uh, Before her retirement, she was the New York Historical Society Senior Director of Resources and Programs and the former chief of their library. 
She received her PhD in American literature from Columbia University, as well as degrees from Michigan, Harvard, and Rutgers. And she's also the author and curator of AIDS, The First Five Years. And Jean, welcome to Talking Heart Island. How are you? Fine. Thank you for having me. Well, it's, uh, it's our pleasure. And um, I guess the best way to go about this, is, and the thing that I was intrigued with with your book when I ran across it, was, of course, the subtitle, The First Five Years. Um, why the interest, from your perspective, in the AIDS epidemic, and, of course, why this book? Well, it started in several ways, partly because I had been the curator of exhibitions on the discovery of insulin, and more uh, more importantly, on the smallpox epidemics in New York City, and the impact that an epidemic has on the economic and social and political history of, of the city. And um, the obvious thing to come next is people looked at the smallpox exhibition. They turned around and said, now you have to do AIDS. It was still, although this was a long time ago now, uh, probably 2012, it was still a sensitive subject, and it was not all certain that we were going to be able to um, put it on. But I was very interested not only for a number of reasons in doing this, and Louise Mira, the president of the Historical Society, was very eager to move ahead with this uh, disease that had had such a huge impact on our history. What, did you have any firsthand um, accounts or people that you knew? Well, it was more, I was, in the, I, I was in the city at the time. I was working at the time. I had I have four daughters, four kids, so you know I was a family person living in Brooklyn. But it was, you you could not avoid the sight of people in the subways with the uh, Carposi sarcoma bruises, black spots all over them, or people on the street looking ghastly um, all over the place. I had no personal. I mean, I had acquaintances in my professional field that somehow they would disappear, or someone would say, "Oh, you know, his T cell count is off." And so I was very much aware that this was happening. My personal friend, you know, the, the partners of a few of my personal friends somehow disappeared. My, no, none of my close friends had it, but you couldn't avoid it in, at the time. Right. How did you actually go about doing your research for the book? Well, a number of ways. One of the things I, I, it, I had three or four motives in uh, putting this exhibition on. One is, in a sense, to act as a memorial for those people who died. And so from that point, I wanted to interview people who were still around, people who had had lovers and spouses, who are not spouses at that point, or yes, some, who had died in the epidemic. So the survivors um, I wanted to talk to and capture their experience, and in part because so many younger people had never even had no memory of it. AIDS was something that existed in Africa. You know, they had no th thought of this and didn't remember the suffering. So I wanted to do that, and I talked to a lot of survivors. But I was equally interested, because of my earlier exhibitions, in the pressures that were put on or felt by the medical community and the way in which the survivors and the researchers and the clinicians were all intertwined. And sometimes at enmity, sometimes they were not happy with one another, but there was a story to be told there, and I wanted to make sure to capture in the exhibition both 
the development of AIDS is a horrendous and emotional experience for the survivors and the patients or the people with AIDS, but also to capture the experience of involved doctors and researchers who are on the and, and others caretakers who are on the front line. So I thought these two stories and the way they interacted with one another were were very interesting. When you uh, <clears throat> mentioned uh, the impact that this had on the uh, uh, physicians and, and other medical people dealing with the AIDS epidemic, uh, as a part of uh, my little bit of research, I read about St. Vincent's Hospital, oh, which yes. was, I guess, one at the epicenter of all this. Did, yes, were you it was. able to talk to anybody? Can you oh, tell yes. us about that a little bit? Um, yeah, I, I talked there with a, a survivor, uh, not a survivor, but a caretaker at the time, Sister Kevin Phillips, who had been in charge of the nursing school. St. Vincent's was a Catholic hospital, but it was in the sort of the epicenter of the a a gay community at the time. And she said she was telling me some really heart-rending stories of how, you know, they were all of a sudden overwhelmed with victims of this mysterious disease. Um, they were a Catholic hospital, and the Archbishop at the time in the New York of New York was not had come out against homosexual lifestyles, but they were the Sisters of Charity, and they took care of everyone. And she. She really, she said at one time, we had 100 beds out of our 800 that were devoted to AIDS patients. And eventually they had a whole separate wing of the hospital devoted. And they, they, I had a, she was a wonderful person, or maybe is, I don't know whether she's still alive. But uh, she really gave me a sense of what it felt to be like on the caretaker, uh, on the, you know, on the edge of the crisis when people were not happy both because they were sick or because the, of the community she was representing. Now, now again, the, the subtitle of your book is The First Five Years, and it's during that uh, period of time that I want to kind of uh, focus in sure. on, because it was during that time that nobody really knew what was going on. Oh, it must have been a very scary. Oh, tell absolutely. Us, talk to That's us a little bit the, about that. Yeah, absolutely. That was, as I said before, there are two, were two strains. There were the people who were sick and were seeing their partners get a, getting sick and were getting panic-stricken themselves and were, you know, their friends were dying all around them and they were looking at bruises and saying, is this it? And they had no idea what was going on or what the sim first symptoms might be. And of course, all the knowledge grew later on after 1985, but at this early point, they didn't. But from the, the doctor's point of view, I was particularly helped by Dr. Donna Mildvan who, among a couple of others, were at had gay clientels in their practice. She was at Beth Israel, and she, since maybe the late 70s, had noticed in her uh, practice that particularly gay men had odd swollen glands. And they, this was an epidemic, and it wasn't something that was natural for somebody in their 20s and 30s to come into the hospital with this sort of uh, odd... Uh, syndrome that really didn't belong in these kind of people. And she, she knew something was going on. And then other doctors were looking around and seeing other kinds of things. Somebody came in, one of the doctors was seeing the Kaposi sarcoma, the big black spot. And that's something that only elderly Mediterranean men had. And what was happening that the group, but these hadn't been put together. They were random. And Dr. Lawrence Mass in the very beginning of 1981 
had heard rumors that there was a gay disease, and he went down to the CDC, and they said, oh, no, there's no epidemic. And he reported in the gay press that, no, no, this is a rumor. It's unfounded. But within two months, they had identified it. And Donna Miljan told me this oh, amazing story, which, you know, in the grand rounds of the hospitals, everybody's exchanging information. And then she had this in her mind, and she sat down with Dr. Dan William, who was in the New York City Health Department, and he was explaining what he had observed. She was explaining what she had observed over lunch one day or at a lunch counter. And they both looked at one another and said, this is an epidemic. These are connected. And within a couple of months, the CDC was and the New York Times was reporting there is a new there is a new disease spreading around. Nobody knew what it was. Some some people thought it was a form of cancer. Some people just said this weird pneumonia is a, maybe it's coming from the carpet in the dance halls where people are dancing. But they couldn't connect for it. To, it took a while before, and even when they connected, they had no source. They said, "Okay, this is an epidemic." And these cases are turning up everywhere. And some of them have this symptom and some of them have symptom. And maybe the people with the swollen glands, suddenly they're beginning to have eye problems, beginning to go blind. And, and what is this? But the, the, nobody had ever seen anything like this before. And the medical Actually, community it, and the medical community was not very happy. They, they just didn't want to see that this was an epidemic. Um, it was you were saying you were saying something. I'm sorry. Well, you, you're saying you just mentioned that the medical community was not happy. Uh, why were they afraid that somehow they were going to be blamed for not yeah. being able to? Well, yes. I mean, by the medical cure community, this disease. Yeah, absolutely. They well, and they didn't know how infectious it was. So you know, they they some of the hospitals. Uh, refused to admit patients with AIDS and they put, or they admitted them and said, oh, they have pneumonia because they didn't want to scare off the, their client, their wealthier clients with more ordinary diseases and said, oh, if they find out that this disease is in our hospital, they'll never come here. And doctors, uh, you know, they didn't, they didn't, they've always put their lives at risk. And in this case, this was so mysterious, they were afraid they were going to catch it themselves. And although, uh, they were willing to do it. They weren't necessarily terrified that this totally fatal and horrible disease was going to spread into to them and their families. Nobody knew it, it was, although they identified gay men as one of the early, uh, I guess, epicenters of all of this. There were other people getting sick too. There were women, there were children being born with AIDS and and one doctor told the story, you know, they were worried about cutting themselves in the operating room. And if they cut themselves, would they get AIDS? And so ordinary medical behavior was, was all up in the air. So the medical ethics of who you treat and who you don't treat were all changed by this mysterious disease. It was really a watershed in, in medical ethics, in the, in the whole case of medical ethics. You know, when I was doing uh, my research on Heart Island, I came across, and this is absolutely stunning, that when the first AIDS victims were buried on Heart Island, they buried them in a mass grave 14 feet deep. And I was struck with the paranoia that had to exist for it to be believed that people who had died of AIDS had to be buried deeper 
than other people buried at Hart Island. For what reason? Thinking oh, that the age. Think this, about that. This was really terrifying, as as you noted that that a lot of the funeral homes would not touch AIDS victims. In fact, one of the astounding things to me, talking about Hart Island or talking about uh, uh, people who died, was that the New York State Funeral Directors Association issued a statement saying there should be a moratorium on embalming victims of AIDS. Uh, Six months, uh, you know, it was just a six-month moratorium. Funeral homes didn't take it. The place called Redden Funeral Home in the village was one of the only places in town that would touch victims of AIDS, which, of course, compounded the problem that Sister Kevin Phillips was running into. Many families had disowned their children because they were gay. Uh, There was such a stigma attached. And to be sick as well as gay, many, many, many people with AIDS were dying without any family, any partners allowed in. Right. And and they they couldn't be buried, they couldn't be embalmed. So, uh, and people were really terrified. There's the story, which is I don't think it's apocryphal because two doctors told me of seeing the the carts piled up in the highway in the hallways of hospitals where the aides would not take in meals to rooms of people who had AIDS. Um, it there was just terror. You know, it's like Ebola was in a very different sense not too long ago and would still be had it if it occurs again in this city. Right. Um, and also, I'd also been very yeah. interested. I'm sorry to interrupt. I was very interested in, and one of the reasons this subject intrigued me was that in dealing with the history of smallpox, a city, another horrible disease, actually in 1947, some people wandered in from tra- a traveler wandered in with smallpox and they discovered that it was in the city. And within a month after this discovery, six million people in New York were voluntarily vaccinated. You have we have pictures, photographs in the Historical Society of Archives of people standing in line at public schools and churches to get their smallpox vaccine. Yet, you know, the contrast, there were there are various reasons as to why this happened in this particular way, but the contrast with the terror that surrounded AIDS is just was just dramatic to me. Right. Incredible. Well, as you know, uh, as somebody who um, lives in New York City, many of those outlying so-called barrier islands, which Hart Island, of course, is one of, but Blackwell Island, North Mm -hmm. Brothers Island, even even Ellis Island were used at one time or another as places to quarantine. Oh, yes. People. And in the 19th century, the smallpox and and so on. I wonder if you could do this. Regarding the AIDS epidemic, could you talk about the politics of the disease? I, I, I know that in the 80s and the 90s, there was a lot of discussion, a lot of disagreement about whether the gay bathhouses, for instance, should have been shut down and, and, and other areas. Did you run into that? Can you talk oh, about yes. the politics of AIDS? Uh, well, a little bit. Um to begin with, the, the, the city, nobody really wanted to, to do anything about this. Larry Kramer, as everyone knows, was one of the most, the primary state uh, spokespeople for, in all of this and got together with several of her, his friends to establish sort of a pressure group. Um, Reagan was president. He had cut money for research and he did not recognize that nobody, the president did not recognize AIDS as a threat 
until the middle of the 80s. At this very, at this time, it was just something happening to um, people in New York, many of them homosexuals, but also the immigrant community of Haitians, the drug users who were using heroin, the big H's, as they called all of these people. And nobody wanted to touch it politically. I interviewed Mayor Koch just a couple of weeks before he died, who said he did everything. He was proud of his record on AIDS, but it took him about three years. And then I thought this was interesting. And Gerald Oppenheimer, who wrote an introduction to our book, I just reread it, had pointed out that um, even when money did come in the mid eight after 1985, when it was recognized and after Rock Hudson died, uh, it was all devoted to research. Very little money ever went to social work or feeding people or taking care of them. And here were these isolated victims, many of them knowing they were dying, some of them, many of them blind, who were being sent back to apartments either by themselves or with partners who themselves were dying, and there was no social network for them. And that's why some of the earlier the earlier people like Matilda Krim and others really tried to negotiate for you know, hospitals or halfway houses or some kinds of social work. And eventually some volunteer groups came in, like God's Love We Deliver, to, to feed people. But just imagine the loneliness and the horror. And I bet these people ended up in Hart Island, an awful lot of them. Sure. The um, you had mentioned Rock Hudson's death. That was really a pivotal point, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Um, I, I, talk about that a little bit. Well, Rock Hudson. You know, I, I think everybody knew that he was gay or had not. Well, maybe not the mainstream people, but a lot of people did. And uh, so when he got AIDS, it was something that was very difficult for people who had always seen him as sort of a comic hero on the screen, a handsome guy, and had never had no clue that he was gay. When he announced he had AIDS, there was a really strong reaction. And then when he became seriously ill, uh, the press was just all over it. And they, they, uh, they there was a famous picture of um, they, he wouldn't, they wouldn't, I don't know, forget who forbid the, any photographs of him, but they photographed his heli the helicopter delivering him as a patient at the hospital in California where he'd been in Paris. And uh, his good friend Elizabeth Taylor then was recruited to take a really active role in mobilizing her companions, her friends, and the wealthy people of the country in trying to raise money for AIDS, not just for research, but for other kinds of services. And this was before, and while this was happening, the AIDS activist groups were getting more and more involved, but they were still marginal in many places. Homosexuality was still terror, terrifying to many people. And, and they, it was, so the people were not in the mainstream until Elizabeth Taylor and Hollywood got involved and all of the great talent on Broadway and in the advertising industry turned their their um, connections into powerful forces to raise money and, you know, move from a state of passivity into aggressive activeness. In the uh, three or so minutes we have left, I wonder if you could address this. You know, AIDS uh, and like Heart Island, is a story of statistics in, in one sense. And what I uh, learned is that as of last year, 
there were approximately 120,000 people, 120,000 living in New York City with HIV. And that one in five, or about 25,000 of them, don't know that they're infected. And in fact, nearly 1,500 people still die of AIDS in New York City annually. Uh, and I like to have you juxtapose that against another uh, uh, program that you were the curator of, which seems to me to be a, a relationship that's called Be Sure, Be Safe, Get Vaccinated. Is there kind of a connection there that people should well, be thinking of? Yes, that was the smallpox epidemic. Right immediately right. after World War II, people were used to cooperating with things. They had seen smallpox, which is, you know, visibly really ugly. It leaves huge scars and people get very sick. And when the government said you can get vaccinated for free, they got vaccinated and it was visible. With AIDS, not only was there this, this uh, terror of the disease itself and the sort of stigma that continued because of its association with communities of what they would call undesirables. Somebody might call it an undesirable. The kids in the schools might get AIDS from this. Um, I think one of the things that I learned, which is rather frightening, was that still today a lot of people won't admit they have AIDS. And a lot of the, especially in communities with strong evangelical churches where being gay is, is frowned upon, people will say anything than, rather than, and a lot of women who have it, even now, will go to tell their communities that they have pneumonia or tuberculosis um, and won't tell anybody they have AIDS. And many of those people go ahead, go on, go on and die without treatment. And, and I guess uh, being a, uh, you know, a drug uh, user, I mean, it, it's kind of what has now become the second act, if, so to speak, of the AIDS epidemic, uh, people using uh, needles for drugs and so on. Oh yes, I mean that uh, drug users were uh, had a had a well, I don't know. The drug users tended to get AIDS, many of them, and so when they tried to have free exchange of needles and so forth, it was all associated with the the stigma of AIDS, and so it's still there. That stigma is still there. Right. Well, um, Gene, I time flies when you're having fun, and I learned a lot. And believe it or not, our, our time is over. But I want to thank you very much uh, for taking the time to uh, join us here on Talking Hard Island. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Michael. Hi, this is Norma Jean. I wanted to take a moment to remind you, in order to receive updates or news about upcoming episodes of Talking Heart Island, simply go to the subscribe page on our website, located at www.michaeltkeen.com and enter your email address. If you have any questions about the podcast itself or simply wish to contact any team members for book inquiries, voiceovers, website or graphics design, use our contact page, also found at www.michaeltkeen.com. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to give us a review, please do so at iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. So until next week, this is Norma Jean, and we're Talking Heart Island. <laughs>